got quite a few people here that weren't here last week who are regular member or attenders and members. So it seems appropriate. I'm not going to re-preach the whole sermon from last week, but I'm going to take a few minutes and just go over the major ideas and then get into where I want to go today. And so let's read the foundational scriptures that serve as the launching pad for our study of saving faith. And then after we read those, pray and ask for God's blessing. First of all, Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. Now after John was delivered up, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And then Acts 20, verse 21, testifying both to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's pray and ask for the help of God, the ministry of the word. Father, as once again we consider what saving faith is and how to discern it, we pray for your blessing upon the ministry of the word, that it would not come back empty. You know what every person here is like inside of us. You know our hearts. You know us better than we know ourselves. And we pray, Lord, that you by the Holy Spirit would bring a word that is suited personally to each one of us. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, we had one message on repentance. But as I was studying saving faith, I realized that to try to cram all of it into one message would have been just a bit heroic, and we would have been here for several hours. So I decided to break it up into three. The first time I wanted to talk about, I wanted to teach you something. I wanted you to learn what saving faith is. The second thing, what I want to focus on today, is a warning. I want to protect you. A word of admonition, not to rebuke you, but to warn you to be able to discern something. I want you to be able to discern the difference between genuine saving faith and counterfeit faith. And then, God willing, next time, I want to give a word of that's primarily motivation. I want to motivate you, if you don't have faith, to believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. And if you do, to increase in faith and to live by faith. Now, a brief word of reflection on where we were. Last time we looked at what saving faith is. And we looked at the distinctive feature of saving faith. That faith is confidence in what cannot be seen. Paul said we walk by faith, not by sight. And that faith is the evidence of things unseen. It sees an unseen world. And that its foundation is confidence in God and confidence in the word of God, as Abraham had. Looking to the promise of God, he waxed strong through faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able to perform. So that faith is like a target with concentric circles. And in the outer circle, it's confidence in God, that he is, and that he's good, and in his word, that it is true and reliable. And that what God promises, he can perform. And then the final thing we looked at is the Christ-centered focus. Faith 
toward our Lord Jesus Christ. The inner circle, the bullseye of the target of saving faith is Jesus Christ. It's confidence in the gospel, as Jesus said. Repent and believe in the gospel, that the Bible story of Jesus is true and reliable, confident that it is true. And confidence in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ, relying on him, calling on him with confidence in him to save and rescue us from our sins. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you will confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Well, so much for review. So that's where we went last time. Five minutes? Can you live with five minutes? All right, that, that was it. I want you to understand the basic feature of saving faith, that it sees the unseen world. The broad foundation, the outer part of the target, confidence in God and his word, the bullseye, Confidence in the gospel and in Christ as our Savior. Now, saving faith has some distinctive features that we need to know what they are so that we can distinguish genuine saving faith from counterfeits that are around. And I want to open up today three of those distinguishing features, features that are highlighted in Scripture. And the point is so that you would have discernment to be able to know the difference between the genuine and the counterfeit. And the first feature of saving faith has to do with its source. The source, the ground of saving faith is the Word of God. Not human tradition, not human philosophy, not science, but the Word of God is the source and ground of genuine saving faith. The Word and power of God. Secondly, saving faith is something that lasts. It's not temporary, it's permanent. Genuine saving faith has a duration that is lifelong. It lasts as long as you live. And the third distinguishing feature of genuine saving faith is that genuine saving faith always, without exception, inevitably, gives rise to fruit a godly life. Quote, good works. Quote, gospel obedience to God. Holiness that is evangelical, not pharisaic. Genuine holiness, genuine godliness, a holy life, however you want to say it, always, inevitably, results from genuine saving faith. And those are three distinctive features that the scripture shines a spotlight on these things so that you can tell the difference 
between genuine saving faith and counterfeits. And the reason for that is to warn you because there are counterfeit versions of of so-called gospel faith all over the place today. And we face danger. And I'm telling you these things in order to protect you so that you would have that discernment. Now, many of you already have it, but it doesn't hurt to hear it again because we live in a world filled with danger. It's not safe here. I'm not talking about crime in the city. I'm talking about the spiritual danger of false religion that destroys souls forever. I mean, if you're the victim of a crime in the city and somebody kills you down there or wherever you're going to get killed, if it's not New York City, wherever it is, all they can do is take your life. Can't destroy your soul. But these false counterfeit versions of faith do a lot more than take people's lives. They destroy and ruin their souls forever. That's why we got to be careful. That's why I want to make sure you discern the difference for the good of your soul. So I'm not saying this to rebuke you. I'm not saying this to attack you. I'm saying this to protect you. Clear? Now let's look at these things then. The first feature, or the first distinguishing trait, if you can put it that way, is that saving faith has a divine source and ground, and that is the Word of God. Romans chapter 10. We looked at Romans 10 last time. I didn't, I, I just alluded to it. But when you look at what saving faith is, it's confidence that the gospel is true that Jesus really is God, that he really did live a perfect life, and that life is the ground of our acceptance with God, that he really died on the cross, and that death on the cross, as we just remembered, is the ground of our pardon before God, that God actually raised him from the dead, literally and bodily. His soul returned, his human soul returned to his dead body, and and that body glorified, resurrected from the dead. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9, we read, But if you will confess Jesus with your mouth, Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart men believe, and with the mouth confession is made. Verse 11, For the scripture says, Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in his name. That saving faith believes the gospel. It has confidence in the gospel. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That he is God incarnate. That he lived a perfect life. That he died on the cross. That God raised him from the dead. And it is confidence in him personally. And if you will believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and confess with your mouth that he is Lord, you will be saved. For whosoever, verse verse 13, for whosoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Calling on his name is personally relying in him. Lord Jesus, I believe you're alive. I know you're alive. You're the only one who can save me. Save me. Rescue me. 
Deliver me from my sin. My only hope is your perfect life and your atoning death. Calling on his name. You don't stand at a grave and call on the person who's dead to do anything for you. Mom, can you hear me? I need 20 bucks. Who does this? You're not not going to get 20 bucks from your dead mother's grave. What's my point? My point is who calls on Jesus that believes that he's dead? You don't. Nobody calls on a dead Christ to save them any more than I would call on my dead mother to loan me 20 bucks. Not going to happen. You've got to believe that he's alive. Call on him. In your heart, call on him. How can you rely on somebody that can't do anything because he's dead? So the fundamental issue of saving faith is that it calls, it it's, it's, has a Christ-centered focus, as we saw last time. Now that's just foundational to what comes next. Where does that come from? What is its source and ground? Verse 14. How then will they call on him whom, in whom they haven't believed? How will they believe in him whom they haven't heard? How are they going to hear without a preacher? How are they going to preach except they be sent? Just like it's written. How beautiful are the feet of them that bring good tidings of good things, it's through the gospel and the proclamation of the word of God, the gospel word, that people come to faith. Genuine saving faith comes from and is grounded on the word of God. The word of God is its source. The word of God is its ground because it is confidence in God and in the word of God in general and in the gospel in particular, which is the word of God. Verse 17, so belief, faith, comes by hearing, faith of hearing and hearing of the word of God, or some read the word of Christ. Hearing the word. Faith credits the word. Faith doesn't grow out of philosophy. It doesn't grow out of science. It doesn't grow out of human reason. It doesn't grow out of human tradition. It grows out of and is grounded on the word of God and specifically the gospel of Christ, which is the word of God. The Holy Spirit blesses the word of God and creates saving faith when the word of God is heard. It is a supernatural work of God that rests in the power of God and flows from the word of God. That's the distinctive of saving faith. So that saving faith embraces God's word. Saving faith has confidence in God's word. Saving faith regards God's word as true. Saving faith. Trust God's word. And it's grounded on it. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5, underscores this. 
What is the source of saving faith? The words of men, human tradition, human authority, scientific study. What is it? Romans, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 2. And I, brothers, when I came to you, didn't come with excellency of speech or wisdom. I didn't come to you as a philosopher to try to persuade you by human reason. That wasn't the source. Proclaiming the testimony of God. Because I determined not to know anything except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It wasn't about me. It wasn't about my eloquence. It wasn't about my great philosophical reasoning. He says, verse 4, my speech and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. It wasn't that I was such an eloquent speaker and philosopher with persuasion of human wisdom and philosophy that convinced you and converted you. That's not what happened. But it was in demonstration of the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, and power, that is supernatural power, attended my gospel ministry. Why? In order that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Your faith is in the word of God. Your faith is in the power of God. It is supernatural power through an inspired word that is the means that God uses to create the genuine article. And therefore, genuine faith that comes out of the word and grows from the word by the power and ministry of the Holy Spirit that genuine faith believes and regards the scripture to be true, to be inerrant, to be infallible, to be reliable, to be its authority for living. And that distinguishes it from the so-called faith of heretics. distinguishes it from heresy. Again, the Apostle Paul does this explicitly. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 18, speaks about specific people and specific heresy. And he says, Men who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already. And what do they do? They overthrow the faith of some. Their so-called faith, their so-called Christian profession of faith, did not grow out of the word of God. People tell us today, there's no such thing as truth. It doesn't really matter what you believe. It doesn't. It certainly does. It does matter what you believe. So much does it matter that John says in 2 John 8, someone comes to you and doesn't have the teaching of Christ, doesn't have the teaching of God the Son. He doesn't know God and he doesn't have God. He's not saved. If someone comes to you denying the deity of Christ, 
doesn't have saving faith. Denying Christ's sinless life. Denying his atoning death. Denying his bodily resurrection. Tells you that that stuff is all a bunch of fairy tales. None of it really happened. But it doesn't matter if it really happened or not. People that say that. It doesn't matter whether Jesus is really God. It doesn't matter whether Jesus was a sinner. It doesn't matter whether Jesus and Mary Magdalene had a sexual relationship. None of that matters. It doesn't matter whether Jesus' biological father was a Samaritan. It doesn't matter whether Jesus is still dead and we can and, and, and find his body in some tomb in Palestine today. It doesn't really matter. See, what, what matters is what it means for me. And how that story is a good example for me to move me. You know what? That's not saving faith. That does not grow out of the word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. Denial of the deity of Christ is not the confession of saving faith. Denial of the virgin conception and birth of Christ is not a confession of saving faith. Denial of the sinless life of Christ is not a confession of saving faith. Denial of the bodily, literal resurrection of Christ is not a confession of saving faith. It is a heretical faith that destroys people's souls. Denial of the second coming of Christ and the literal coming resurrection of the body and saying that just a, a spiritual mystical idea that already happened is not saving faith and overthrows people's souls. It's soul-destroying error, heresy. Call it whatever you like. And we are warned in the scripture not to regard it as saving faith, not to credit it as saving faith, not to treat people who believe things like that as having saving faith. Because John says, if you do, then you become a partaker with them of their evil works. When you say, you know, it doesn't really matter what people believe. We live in a postmodern world where everything's relative. It's what you believe, what I believe, who cares what everybody believes. doesn't really matter. So this guy doesn't believe in the deity of Christ, and this guy doesn't believe in the resurrection of Christ, and this guy doesn't believe that Christ was sinless. Oh, so what? I mean, they all think that Jesus is a good example for us to follow, so what's the difference? Don't be deceived. Don't be led astray. Be warned, be protected, know well that such ideas are heresy and soul-destroying errors, and it does matter what people believe. Say so you're a mean-spirited, narrow fellow. Yeah, maybe. I don't claim to be sinless and perfect. Far from it. But this, didn't, this idea didn't come from me, folks. It really didn't. Let me read you this. I'm just going to read you from the Word of God. Many deceivers are gone forth into the world, even those that don't confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist, 
Look to yourselves. Watch out. Be warned that you don't lose the things which you have wrought. So where are you reading from? 2 John 9. 2 John, there's only one chapter in 2 John. It's verse 9. Whosoever goes onward and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. He that abides in the teaching, the same has both the Father and the Son. Verse 10. If anyone comes to you and brings not this teaching, don't receive him into your house. Give him no greeting, because he that gives him greeting partakes in his evil works. Now, tell me, is that the inspired word of God, yes or no? Is that a narrow-minded, sinful perspective on heresy? And is that something that's not in touch with modern philosophy and ought to be stricken out of the Bible because it's not in touch with postmodern theory? Or is that the truth? Does your faith rest on the word of God? Do you believe that that's true? So that's not just some narrow-minded 20th century preacher who doesn't know enough about modern philosophy and has got his head in the ground like an ostrich. It's not where that's coming from. That's the inspired word of God, folks. Inspired word of God. Be warned. Be protected. Beware. When they come knocking on the door, and they tell you that Jesus isn't God. Don't say, hey, brother. No. Don't fall for it. You with me? All right, that's the first thing. The source is saving faith. It's not human philosophy, not human tradition, but the word and power of God. Second thing, the duration of saving faith. Colossians chapter 1. Now Jesus described this when he told the parable of the sower. He described people who believed for a while and in a time of temptation fall away. Well, they think, well, yeah, the story of Jesus is true, but you know, it's not worth dying for. Colossians chapter 1. And so they say, well, you know, I don't want to continue with this if it's going to cost me something. In verse 21, verse 21, Colossians 1, And you, being in time past alienated and enemies in your mind, your evil works, but now has God reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, that is, he reconciled you to himself through Christ. And he did that, Verse 22, with a view to present you in glory, holy and without blemish and unreprovable before him. And now look at this. If so be that you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached in all creation, saving faith endures. Jesus described people, we call them apostates, who for a while believe, they think the gospel's greatness. Oh, this is a great story. I love this story. But then they find out that it's going to cost them something to live by this. They say, well, okay, I like the story. Yeah, it's okay, but I'm not, I'm not willing to suffer and die for a story like that. 
And they say, well, I'm not going to be a Christian if that's what it costs. I don't need that. But genuine faith doesn't do that. We are not of them, says the writer to Hebrews, that shrink back, that turn away from Christianity when the going gets tough, but of have faith unto the saving of the soul. Genuine faith lasts throughout your entire life. And if you go back into the world and renounce your faith in Christ and throw it over because things got a little too high and you don't want to have to pay that price, it's not worth dying for it. It's not worth being rejected for it. It's not genuine saving faith and don't be deceived. Genuine saving faith is more than just saying, okay, you go to a religious meeting, there's a big religious fervor, and the evangelist getting everybody pumped up emotionally. He says, all right, now all you have to do is ask Jesus into your heart. In fact, just come down to the front here. Just get up out of your seat, walk down to the front, and say this, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. That's it. All you have to do is do that, you're automatically saved. Now look, folks, I'm not attacking a person. Maybe some people that do that are genuinely sincere. They really want to help people. I don't know. What, whatever their motives may be, that's between them and God. But this text doesn't say that. It doesn't say that genuine saving faith simply is willing to walk down an aisle and for once say a prayer and ask Jesus into your heart. And then if things get a little rough, you just give up on the whole thing and go back into the world. And you don't have to worry about it because you're automatically saved. That's not true. That's a lie. That's false doctrine. That's deception. And that could be soul-destroying error. And I'm not talking now about the people that are given invitations like that going to hell. That's not what I just said. That's not what I meant. I'm talking about people that just go forward in a meeting and say a little prayer, and then they go back and they live the same way. They go back into the world. They don't continue in their faith, and then thinking that they're saved. Those are the souls that are being destroyed. Those are the people that are being ruined. And I don't want any of you to be ruined like that. I don't want it to happen to you. I want you to understand that genuine saving faith is something that lasts. It's something that continues. It's something that endures throughout your entire life. It doesn't stop when the going gets tough. It doesn't stop when there's affliction or persecution that arises because of the word. You know, folks, we may be in for some lessons, and I could, I don't want to zero in too much on this, but the way our society is going, we may be in for some real lessons in the future about the genuineness of true religion and about what we're willing to endure and suffer to follow God faithfully in a world and in an America that is increasingly hostile to the gospel and to the Bible. There may be a price to be paid for being a Christian in the future in this country. And we've had such a blessing of liberty and freedom from religious persecution. It may be that this type of apostasy flourishes in the church in such a time.
And God may use a time of persecution and pruning as a means of grace to deliver the church from hypocrisy and apostasy. Because the genuine Christianity and genuine saving faith is not going to give up if, the, if it gets, starts to get too hot and starts to get real troublesome. And we begin to be really persecuted for our Christian faith. Genuine Christians are not going to go back into the world to avoid persecution. They're going to stay with Jesus, no matter what it costs. Because genuine faith says this is not only something, it's a wonderful story. This is a story that's worth dying for. And I'm not going to give up my confidence in the Bible, my confidence in God, my confidence in the gospel, my confidence in Jesus. Genuine faith says I'm not going to give that up no matter what it costs me. A lot of times we don't, we don't find out until we're really tested exactly where we're really at. But I say this not to rebuke you, not accusing you of anything. I say it as a warning to protect you. Beware. Know this well. Genuine saving faith lasts for the rest of your life. And I have one final thing that I want to say. And that is not so much to focus on its source, which is the word of God, or its duration, which is throughout your life, but on its inevitable fruit. And that is a holy life. Saving faith always, always gives rise to a life of gospel holiness. Now there are several passages in the Bible if you go through and you look up every place in the New Testament where the word translated faith is found, you'll notice that there are clusters of texts in the New Testament that emphasize various aspects of saving faith and what it's about. The book of Romans is one of those. So is the book of Hebrews, especially Hebrews 11, which is a catalog of those that have lived by faith. But another one of those books is the book of James, and in particular, James chapter 2. James chapter 2 contrasts genuine saving faith with what he calls the faith of demons and dead faith. <coughs> he contrasts genuine saving faith, the faith of demons and dead faith. Verse 14, what does it profit, my brothers, if a man says he has faith but doesn't have works? Can this faith save them? If a brother or sister is naked, lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you don't give them the things needful, what does it profit? says, here's an illustration. Did it do any good to tell the guy, no, I'm really sorry, but I'm not going to help you? That kind of comfort and compassion doesn't, is not genuine compassion. And so a faith that's only in your mouth and only in your head is not genuine faith. He says, even so faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. So he refers to dead faith, the faith of a hypocrite. 
Yes. A man will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I by my works will show you my faith. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Demons believe in God. Doesn't mean they're saved. Look how they live. Evil. Just believing that God is, is not necessarily in and of itself saving faith. And the demons, even the demons believe that. So he talks about demon faith, dead faith. Faith associated with hypocrisy. Faith that does not give rise to a holy life. But won't you know, O vain man, that faith apart from works is barren, empty, without fruit? Wasn't Abraham justified by works in that he delivered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? Now that has caused great controversy. But I wanted to read that passage from Genesis 22 because it underscores something. Now you know the background of this text. Now observe. James is making a point. And his point is very simple. Genuine saving faith always, inevitably, without exception, gives rise to a holy life. The faith of hypocrites, call it dead faith, hypocritical faith, demonic faith, call it whatever you like. That so-called faith is not genuine faith. It's not saving faith because it does not give rise to a holy life, a life of gospel holiness. Does that mean that people are accepted with God on the grounds of their own works? No. Well, what is he saying then? Abraham was justified by works when he offered Isaac. Okay. So I wanted to read Genesis chapter 22. To be justified means to be vindicated by God. Paul is talking about a different divine vindication than the vindication that James has in mind. I want, I want you to get this. Right, it's 10 after 12. You're still here with me? Right, you got to get this because this is very important. In chapter 4 of Romans, Paul says that Abraham was justified by faith before he was circumcised. James says that he was vindicated, justified, by works much later on when he offered up Isaac. How can both of these things be true at the same time? Well, this has caused people great problems. I, I, I think this. You don't throw out Paul. You don't throw out James. There's something that you need to understand. And, you know, most of the theologians, they understand this. They even have names for this. They refer to what Paul's talking about as actual justification and to what James is talking about as declarative justification. Look at it this way. 
God is the judge. The general idea of justification is to vindicate. God vindicates as a judge. And there's more than one vindication. There's not only one. There's more than one. The first vindication, which you could call the justification of the ungodly, takes place at conversion, when a sinner is converted. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans. And what's the ground of that? Not works. Christ. It's by grace alone. On the ground of Christ alone, he justifies the ungodly. He imputes righteousness apart from works. It's on the ground of Christ's obedience in his life and death. Grace alone, Christ alone, faith alone. The justification at conversion. The justification when God turns a sinner into a saint at the beginning of the Christian life. That's, of course, what the church recovered at the time of the Reformation. And that's what God's people have confessed about justification by Christ alone, by grace alone, by faith alone, on the ground of Christ alone, because of grace alone, by means of faith alone. James is not speaking about that. He's not speaking about something that happened to Abraham before he was circumcised, like Paul is. He's speaking about an event that occurred in Abraham's life much, much later. It was when Abraham was tested by God. And God, the judge, is going to give another vindication, another verdict. When a sinner is converted, God, the judge, pronounces the verdict. Accepted, pardoned in the beloved on the ground of Christ alone, by means of faith alone. But that's not the case in court. That this point in Abraham's life, when God proves Abraham, there's a different issue before God the judge in court. And the issue is not how does a sinner get right with God. This is in the Christian life. This is in the Mount Moriah of Christian experience. And the question before God the judge is, is Abraham's religion real? Is his faith genuine? Does he truly fear God? And what's the vindicating, justifying word that comes from the mouth of God out of heaven? Now I know. Here's the verdict pronounced by God the judge. Now I know. Now I perceive in this point in history that you fear God because you haven't withheld your only son from me. The question is, is Abraham's religion genuine? Is his faith saving faith? Does he genuinely fear God? He's tested. He's proved. And the way he behaves is the evidence that God looks at. Now I know because you haven't withheld your only son from me. You have genuine saving faith. So he's vindicated in the sense that God pronounces his religion to be genuine. And this is what the theologians call declarative justification. So God not only vindicates converted sinners when they believe, he also vindicates saints 
on the Mount Arias of life when he tests them and proves them. And what does he look at then? He looks at their life. And that vindication has a different case in court. And the case is, is this person's religion, faith, fear of God, genuine, saving religion and faith? And God looks at his life and he pronounces the verdict. A genuine work of grace has been done in you. I vindicate you. Now I know that you fear God. That's what James is talking about. It's not contradicting Paul. And the reason he's not is because genuine saving faith always, without exception, inevitably gives rise to a godly life. Calm down, Phil. There is a there, there is a not only an echo in here, but there is a there is a really clear, important, vital lesson here. Hypocrisy is inconsistent with heaven. A godly life is essential evidence of genuine saving faith. You follow this? There's no contradiction between James and Paul. Because the issue in court, folks, is not how does a sinner get right with God. The issue in court on Mount Moriah is, is this person's faith genuine? Is his religion genuine? And God looks at your life and your behavior and reaches the verdict and vindicates you or justifies you. No contradiction. But an essential lesson about what faith really is. So beware. Because the faith of demons is not saving faith. Also know this. Just like God proved Abraham, so he proves all Abraham's spiritual children. We all visit Mount Moriah. Now listen, I'm not saying that God's going to come to you and tell you to get a knife and kill your dad or your, or, your, or your children, and if you don't do it, you're, you know, you're not a real Christian. Now, remember I already told you, if you hear voices telling you to go kill people and do something that violates God's moral law, it's not the voice of God. That's not what I mean when I say you're going to visit Mount Moriah. What I mean is this. God's going to put circumstances in our lives where we have to make choices. And those choices are going to display our loyalties. Those choices are going to display our values. What do we value more, God or men? What comes first in your life? God's going to put you in a situation where you're going to have to make that choice. And that choice is going to display whether or not your faith and your religion is genuine or not. And every one of us is going there. He's going to demonstrate it in all of us. And genuine faith always puts God first. I'm not saying that we're going to do it perfectly or sinlessly or without any struggles or difficulties. No, no. None of us is going to pass those tests with a 100 perfect score. Every time we go to Mount Moriah, we get 100. I'm not saying that. 
It's going to be with remaining corruption and with struggle and difficulty that we climb up that mountain. But we're going to climb it. And everyone with genuine faith is going up Mount Moriah. We're all going there. Because God's going to vindicate all of us. And when we go up that mountain, it's going to be evident that we put God first. Because everyone that has genuine faith always does. Not without struggle. Not without difficulty. Not without degrees of failure and, and sin. But nevertheless, when you get to the bottom line, the bottom line is God always comes first whenever there's genuine faith. And genuine faith always gives rise to godly living. And God tests it. And when it's tested, it's evident. And then God vindicates. And when will he declare it? Are we going to hear a voice out of heaven? Like Abraham did? No, remember. We're not going to hear voices telling us the revealed will of God. Well, when's he going to declare openly before everybody what happened on our Mount Moriahs on the day of judgment? On the day of judgment, God's going to declare the genuineness of our religion, the genuineness of our faith. That's when we're going to be vindicated by God. That's when we're going to hear the voice. That's when it's going to speak about you, just like it did about Abraham. And that voice is going to say, I perceive that your religion was genuine. Because when you went through the Mount Moriah of your life, you put me before anything and anyone else. I came first. And I know that's why you have genuine religion. And when are we going to hear that? We're going to hear that on the day of judgment from God Almighty. Follow me? There are two different species of divine vindication. The one vindication is the vindication that takes place at conversion on the ground of Jesus alone because of grace alone by means of faith alone. The other species is the divine vindication of the genuineness of the religion of the saints. It takes place in the Mount Moriahs of life and declared before the whole moral universe on the day of judgment. So be warned, beware. In some, simply this, genuine saving faith. What's its source? The word of God. What's its duration? Your whole life. What's its fruit? Holiness. God first. Godly living. Not to earn or merit acceptance with God, but as the evidence of a genuine work of grace in your life. May God be pleased to bless his holy word for his glory and our good. Let's pray.